I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. Today I'm joined by Jessica Fow. Jessica is a mother of a little boy who is almost three years old. She is a wife. She is also a recovering opiate addict. She has been addicted to opioids for eight years now, following gastric bypass surgery. And on another note, something that you need to know about Jessica is that she is about to go into prison for several months, probably up to seven months, after overdosing on heroin. And Jessica joins me today before she has to admit herself down at the county jail and be transported to state prison. And I just really want to thank you, Jessica, for taking the precious time you have left of freedom before you go into jail to talk to me. You're very welcome, and I appreciate being asked to be here today. You actually reached out to me. Tell me why you did that. A couple of reasons. The strongest times that I've had in my recovery in the past or when I have shared my story with different places, when I volunteered at Tallgrass and Keystone, sharing what I've been through helps me and others, probably helps me more than people think that it does. So it's just something that I wanted to do. Let's talk about the start of your addiction. First off, you had a relatively, whatever normal means, but a relatively normal life. You did, you were overweight, you were obese. And you decided to get gastric bypass surgery. What happened after that? It was awful. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. Like, just a natural disaster of my life. I didn't realize that I had had such an addiction to food and that I had used food for comfort. So after the surgery, when I could no longer comfort my emotions or things I wanted to hide with food, I realized that the pills that I had been prescribed for recovery after surgery gave me kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling, made me not care so much about things in life and numbed things that I didn't want to feel. And I just continued on the path of trying to get more and more pills and more and more pills. And life just continued to, well, started to spiral out of control a few years after that. So basically you switched addictions from food to opioids. I did. Um, And at the time that was legally prescribed to you. Yes. Although it's the same old story we hear over and over again. Eventually they stop refilling the prescription. In my situation, I was getting them from a doctor, and then I started to use more than I was supposed to, so I would run out early and go through some withdrawals and be miserable. So then I went to a second doctor to get another prescription, and I think that worked for a couple months before they both discovered what I had done, and then I got fired from both doctors at that point. Is that when you switched to getting drugs off the street? Yes. And at the time it was started with pills? It started with pills, yes, hydrocodone. Do you think that the medical field is more aware today to help people before they go through gastric bypass surgery, deal with the emotional and psychological issues that that got them maybe to that weight in the first place? I'm not sure how they do it today. I know when I had my surgery in late 2011, they have to, for insurance companies, they have to say that you're mentally fit to have it. 
but they send you to a counselor for 20 minutes who doesn't know you and has never met you before, and they make a decision based on that. Um, so I don't think there's enough education. I don't think that people have the ability or even know that they have an issue that they need to deal with before, you know, taking that risk of going under the knife. Yeah. So you switched to illegal pills. How did you go from pills to eventually ending up shooting up with needles and heroin? A couple of things. The biggest reason the person that I was buying the pills from, um, something had happened where he wasn't getting the quantity anymore. And I I didn't want to go into withdrawal. It it was like one of the biggest fears of my life at the time. You were terrified of withdrawal? Terrified. Why? It is the worst pain, um, illness, the worst feeling that I could ever imagine having uh, in the world. I think I told you the other day as well. I've had a child, and you can't even compare the two. I'd have 10 more children, you know, naturally before I would ever want to go through withdrawal again. That does sound absolutely horrible, mm-hmm. and I think people have a hard time understanding that. You know, they, a lot of the thing you hear out there is, just quit. Why don't you just quit? But the fear of the withdrawal is probably even greater than the need for the high. Am I, am I accurate in that, or maybe not? No, I think you are accurate towards the end of your addiction, especially it's not even that we want to use anymore. It's not that they're really even working anymore. It's become what we're used to. But the withdrawal factor, I mean, I can say multiple times that I you know, quit and then would relapse. The withdrawal factor stopped me from quitting again more times than not. What did this use do to your self-esteem? I, I, I'm guessing you were hiding a lot of it, most I, of it? I did hide most of it. I think the only person that knew for a long time was my ex-husband. It's pretty hard to hide those types of things when you're married. Um, I avoided my parents. I avoided my sister. I She has three girls that I used to be really close with. We used to hang out all the time, and I just basically kept, you know, shut myself off. I was a person who sat in my house all day with the windows and blinds drawn, and some days I didn't get out of my pajamas. Some weeks I might shower once a week. I would became somebody I didn't even know myself. What did your parents, what did your sister, what did they think was going on? They knew something was going on, and they knew I had been prescribed the pain medication, and I think there was some suspicion there. Nobody really confronted me on it in the beginning, and once they would start confronting me, I would get really angry and then take off or not answer phone calls or avoid. That was my thing, avoid, avoid, avoid. I think that is really hard as a, I mean, I was a mother of a daughter who was addicted and I was trying to navigate this and trying to figure out what to do. If I confronted her, she would get angry and then I wouldn't see her for a little while. Sounds a lot like what you were doing. What is the best way? Is there something that could have gotten through to you at that point that your mother, father, sister could have done? You know, that's a really hard question. I don't think so. I think at that point in time that I was so addicted and so wrapped up in what I was doing, I wasn't going to listen to anybody. If they had put me in treatment, um, I'm not sure I would have stayed unless I was court ordered to be there. I know there was a couple of times my parents talked about, you know, involuntary committals. Involuntary commitment, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh And before they could ever get anything done, I would end up in jail. And that was probably the only thing that stopped me for, I don't know, three or f- probably three or four years was when I would go to jail. That was 
You'd get picked up for what? Ingestion? Distribute? What, what were you getting picked up for? Uh, DUIs a lot in the beginning. The pill so use. So you, were, you mm. were driving under the influence of opioids or of alcohol or all of the above? Uh, both. When you have an addiction like I do, eventually there's a lot of problems that start to happen in your home. And I would get drunk or get high and I would get thrown out of the house. And so I'd wait. A lot of the times I'd get thrown out of the house and I wasn't really ever picked up driving. I would be picked up sleeping somewhere, passed out somewhere. Behind the wheel. Behind the wheel. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, don't get me wrong, there was times I was driving as well. But I just, yeah, it was just been a bad run. Yeah. How much shame goes along with everything that you've been through? That's probably the worst part of it. In several of the treatments I've been through, the counselors have picked up on that pretty quickly and I've done some papers on it and a little research on it and the shame has been terrible um what is it that what are the thoughts that go through your head that make you feel ashamed I'm a mother and I'm a wife and my little boy needs me Uh, my parents didn't raise me this way at all I know somewhere deep down that I'm better than this but at the same time when my addiction takes hold of me I don't care about anything but that addiction. And I feel like I should be the mother that I know I can be, the wife that I know I can be, the daughter and sister that I know I can be, but I can't pull myself out of it. And it's just, it causes me so much shame that a lot of times I dig deeper into the addiction to try to cover it up. To escape from it. Mm -hmm. To escape from the feelings of shame. Well, that makes sense. You, I mean, logically or objectively, you can understand that addiction is a disease of the brain and not a character flaw. I do now, yes. You understand it, but yet you still get emotional when you, th- those feelings and those thoughts that come into your mind about how, you know, you've hurt people and you should, you should be better than this and you weren't raised like this. Those thoughts still stick around. They always are there. They're better now. I've learned different ways to cope with the shame. I know that in order to stay in recovery and not to go back uh, to the drugs, to relapse, to die, that I have to find a way to get through the shame completely. And it's something that I work on every day. You know, I work on it with a counselor. I work on it with different people in church, with gratitude lists, anything that I can do to try to remember that I'm not that person. It's hard. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of feeling sorry for ourselves because I was born differently. And my brain has always been wired differently. So I think that's all part of why we go back, because we're not able to push through that. When you say your brain is wired differently or you were born differently, what do you mean by that? You know, when we were, we had a lot of debate in my family and with everybody else about whether this was a disease or not. So we've all done our fair share of research. And then my mom was talking to me one day and She noticed a lot of things that she hadn't thought of before. When I was two years old, I wanted to be like the other kids in the neighborhood, and I wanted to learn how to ride a two-wheel bike. And I stayed outside basically from sunrise to sunset that day. I refused to come in for meals. I refused to come in for anything until I learned how to ride that bike. I wouldn't put it down. Um, She's noticed when I start a book, I read cover to cover. I'll stay up till four in the morning to read it because I can't put it down. So there's some way that your brain is wired, you think, that kind of sets you up for addiction. I think so. I think anything that I like, um, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, I 
become obsessed with it. I do too much with it. I don't, I'm not able to have any self-control. Mm-hmm. And so you've been in and out of treatment, in and out of jail, mm-hmm. started with uh, drug court. DUI court. DUI, mm-hmm. but didn't complete it? I did not. I was in the program for two years. The first, I'd say, year and a half of it was pretty good. I was 30 weeks pregnant when I entered the program. After, I think my son was born, he was three weeks old, I was sent to New Start by DUI court. And the things that I learned at New Start kind of changed my life at that point, I thought. And I managed to stay sober for about a year and a half. So you were sober during your pregnancy? I was. And then after your son was born? I was sober my entire pregnancy except for one slip I had at 20 weeks pregnant where I did drink a little bit of alcohol. And And that's how I ended up in DUI court because I was on probation at the time and called a friend who ended up calling my probation officer and I got detained, Mm -hmm. thankfully. And that (laughs) stopped you from using during your pregnancy other than that slip up? Yeah, it did. I had... I, I was told I could never have til- children. When I found out I was pregnant, it was the biggest blessing in the world to me. It's all I ever wanted was to be a mother. So I didn't want to do anything at all to screw it up. And after your son was born, did you remain in recovery? I did. Uh, I remained in recovery. Let's see. So I was sober from September 23rd of 16. And then he was born January 31st of 17. And I remained sober until the end of June of 18, so almost two years. During that time, he became everything to me. I was really strong in what I was doing with my sponsor. DUI Court is a great program. They send you to mental health in addition to uh, addiction classes that you can take. Um, It's very intense, but if you work it, it will change your life. And I was working it really well at that time. For your son. Mm -hmm. For my... I thought I was doing it for me, but later on it was for my son and it ended up not being enough. Right, because you have to do it for yourself. You have to do it for yourself first. But what happened uh, to cause you to relapse? And and we'll get to the reason why you're you're going to prison shortly. I um, was working one day and I had the worst pain that I've ever had in my life in my stomach. And I tried to work through it. And eventually I started sweating and I was clammy and I knew something was really wrong. And I called my mom. Uh, She picked me up and took me to the ER, and they found out that I had an ulcer that had perforated, so my stomach contents were basically all over my abdomen, Um, so they had to do an emergency surgery, so I didn't die, and I was given Dilaudid in the emergency room for the pain. I would black out from the pain, so the the doctor made a decision to give me Dilaudid, which is basically synthetic heroin or legal heroin. Even um, though they didn't, they were aware that you were an addict. They are very aware. I have a family doctor that knows everything. It's listed in charts at McKinnon and Sanford that I'm an addict and don't give her this in the ER. But at that point, he knew my life was on the line and made the decision to do it anyway. The doctor did before I had surgery. And did having that in the hospital cause you to relapse? Yes, I believe so because once... You can be as strong as you think you think you're stronger than anything in the world, but once that substance enters back into your body, I wasn't me anymore. I felt like I was a different person. I felt like the drug had taken over. Everything just felt different. And instead of being about my family, it was about the drug again. And 
But the first couple of days after the surgery, I was taking them for pain. And then I realized that I was asking for them in addition to the, you know, I didn't need them as often as I was asking for them because of how I felt on them. Mm-hmm. So. And did you go back to using heroin shortly after you got out of the hospital then and stopped using the pills? Or how long ago was that, that you had the ulcer? That was June of 2018. I was prescribed probably enough pills to get through the middle of July. And then I knew I didn't want to come off of them. But being in DUI court, there's, for the most part, we have UAs probably, our drug tests, probably 11 to 12 times a month. Uh, I knew with opiates and myself that it was about a 24 to 36 hour window for them to be out of my system. I think in the beginning, it was twice a week. I found somebody that did have Dilaudid that I would buy, you know, a two milligram pill for $25. Probably, I think it was twice a week. And then it escalated towards the end. And it was either Dilaudid or heroin, whatever I could find. Did you Do you think you could have survived that surgery without Dilaudid? What's I, your opinion now looking back? I mean, it's pretty hard to guess in the moment, I'm sure. I could have. I could have. It would have been excruciating. It was... In the time they just, you know they took to decide if they were going to medicate me or how they were going to do it, I didn't think I could have survived without anything else. Looking back on it, I think that our bodies are able to survive more than we think that they can, and I probably would have been just fine. But you start using again. Your son is how old at this time? He'll be three in January. He was about one and a half. Mm-hmm. Right. How did that affect your ability to be a mom when you started using again? You know, I justified it as well at, by not using around him, not bringing it into our home. A lot of times on the two days a week that I would choose to use, he was with his dad. So I didn't think it affected him at all until later on when I realized just how much it did. Because even if I wasn't using, I was thinking about the next time I could or how I was going to take money without my husband knowing what it was for. Uh, it was a lot of my So you whole go life. back to a lot of lies and a mm-hmm. lot of um, just hiding things, and that affects everybody around you, whether you think it does or not, right? Right. Everybody. And, I mean, your whole life becomes a lie. So what happened that brought you to this day where you're facing going to prison? I wouldn't quit uh, with the pills back in June, July, August of last year. DUI court could see that there was a shift in my attitude. They weren't exactly sure what was going on in the beginning, Um, And then they did figure it out, and I had to admit it. And then I was put on house arrest for 90 days, and towards the end of that, I had some issues with the house arrest. They did think I was using again because I had been so dishonest throughout that nobody really knew what they could believe anymore. So I got terminated from that program, and that was December of last year. I got sentenced to prison. With the UI court, basically, they'll su- suspend your prison time if you successfully complete the program. Right. So if you're facing drug charges uh-huh. or, in your case, a, a DUI charge, they will say, you can go to DUI court, and if you successfully complete it, we'll suspend. You don't have to go to prison. You'll Correct. have the hanging over your head, mm-hmm. basically. Yes. Yeah. So once I failed it, I got you know put in front of the judge, and she gave me I think, four years with one suspended. I had a lot of credit for a lot of time I had sat in county. So when I went to pier, I sat in pier for 60 days. I went home on an ankle monitor. And you were missing your son, I bet, a lot. Terribly. How was was it in prison? It was a women's prison, women's state prison, for two months. Mm -hmm. What's it like there? It's awful. There's drama. There's cat fights. There's no treatment there. There's hardly any Are most people in there for drugs? 
I would say, I heard this statistic, I think 75 to 80% of the women that are there are there for drugs or alcohol. Or maybe it's even a secondary thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. So what you what kind of treatment? Tell me what kind of counseling, what kind of treatment did you get there? If you want to see mental health, they really don't have a lot to do with you if you're going to be there for anything less than six months. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to help you. They'll tell you in an emergency that you can call them or kite them, but they don't really do anything to adjust any medications or look at those needs that you may have. Uh, as far as any treatment, they don't have chemical dependency treatment at all right now other than MRT, which is a class. They used to do another class, uh, Sabisa, but they don't have the staff to do that right now either, the last time I was there anyway. So there's not... So you weren't getting treatment for addiction while you were in there? No, not at all. Did you attend any of that class? Did you attend any of those classes? Uh, I did outside of prison after... After I was released in February. But when you were in prison? No, no. nothing You're just prison. sitting there without any treatment, mm-hmm. without any drugs. Mm-hmm. Did you go through withdrawal? Uh, I, not that time. By the time I got to prison, I hadn't used since August. Uh, it was just for the suspicion of lying. So when I went in December, it had you know been, I think, four months since I had used. So what I was that like being away from your little boy? That's the worst pain that I can imagine having as a mother. It was just us until he was, I think, five or six months old before my husband and I became more than friends. And we did, I mean, he was everything. We did everything together. I was always with him. Early on, his dad wasn't around as much. Being separated from him, I don't have the words to describe how much pain that is. He was somebody I wasn't supposed to be able to have. And he's the most amazing little boy on the planet that doesn't deserve what he's gone through. So sitting in prison, especially with no classes, no way to make yourself feel better or to fix yourself or have somebody help you, and then to sit there and think about him the entire time you're there and what you've done and you're supposed to be a mother and not this addicted person, it makes it worse. You come out of prison, I think, a lot angrier than you ever were when you went in. Has it changed you? Has it? Do you feel like it's hardened you? Yes. I didn't realize how much. My husband's an amazing man, but we've had a lot of struggles with the prison stay, with the lying that I did to him about the relapses. And he's in recovery as well. Your he husband. is. He has three and a half years. He is. He. He. He does really well. And when anybody asks him if he's going to relapse or if he thinks about it, he said, "No, I have my wife to thank for that." So, but. As far as our relationship, I didn't realize how much it had hardened me until he sat down and talked to me more about it and pointed out things. I was angry a lot when I got home. He's like, you're angry all the time. You never smile anymore. Nothing makes you happy. It stole your joy? It did. It really did. Um, I told myself when I was pregnant that that life was over and I would never leave my child. And the shame and guilt that I had from leaving him almost ate me alive when I got out. And it didn't take me long to relapse. And right, you couldn't deal with the with with yourself, right? No, I couldn't. I couldn't at all. He was my son was so much different. My husband was so much different. And I mean, I I was so much different too. Looking back on it, nothing was the same anymore. I when I did go to prison, I gave my son's father fifty percent custody, and like I had said, you know, 
my son and I were inseparable. We were always together. So coming back, in addition to being angry and having relationships that were changed, I also only had my son 50% of the time. So we send people, we as a society, send people to prison to rehabilitate them, to teach them a lesson, to make them change their ways. But in the case of addiction, when you got out of prison, it seems to me that the, the feelings you had and the situation you were in actually set you up to use again. I would agree. I think that if the prison system had the counseling and they had the classes, I think that it could have been different if I was truly sent there for help. But as far as the women's prison, I feel like the only thing that you can do there is be punished. So coming out angry, if I could have had somebody to talk to you to deal with that or to get to the bottom of it while I was there, it might have been a different story for me. But I, I, I do feel maybe like it is setting you up for relapse when you're sent to prison where there's no help. And so how long after you got home did you begin to use again? I got home on February 19th, and I overdosed on March 18th. I overdosed the first use. So a month. So a month later. Mm -hmm. So a month later, you decide, after getting out of prison, you're going to use again. And this is probably, to me, and because I'm familiar with your story, the saddest part of your story is that you actually drive somewhere, parking lot, and you sit in a parking lot and use heroin for the first time. And this would have been the first time in how many months, would you say? Seven. Seven months. Mm-hmm. First time in seven months. Mm-hmm. And so your tolerance already wouldn't be what it would be if you were using regularly. Correct. What was going through your mind when you purchased that heroin? I actually didn't want to purchase heroin because I was afraid that what happened, like what did happen, would happen if I did. So I went to somebody trying to buy two pills. You were um, looking for pills, mm-hmm. opioids. Yeah, right, opiates, like, uh, Oxycontin, you know, anything, um, Dilaudid, any opiate that I could get my hands on. But not heroin. No, because I feel like with heroin, you can't ever know exactly how much you're getting or what it's laced with. And I thought, I kind of justified it by saying if I get pills, it's okay. So I went to somebody who I had dealt with, you know, two or three years back. She said that she had bought these two supposed, I think, 30 milligram oxys that she had already crushed up to use. And I didn't question it. It wasn't oxy. It was heroin and fentanyl. I found out later. Heroin laced with fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Yes. What happened? What did you do? I uh, bought it, I think, in the morning that day. I just didn't go to work that day. I was overwhelmed with everything. I was angry. And uh, I did. I drove around in the morning. I found, I think, I got the pills about 11. And it was, I think, 4 o'clock when I ended up in the parking lot. I had to buy three little shooters of booze, the tiny little single shots, and drink them to be able to even have the courage to go into Lewis Drug to buy the syringes and use. And when I did, I remember I had put the needle in my arm and I was getting ready or I had just done a little bit of it, enough to throw me off a little bit. And my husband called and we talked for just a minute and he knew something was wrong and he said, just come home, please come home. And I told him I couldn't. And he got you know, upset, hung up the phone, and then I used the rest of it. And I didn't, the next thing I remember is the police and the paramedics. So you overdosed in your car in a parking lot. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that's considered a DUI? It is because you have physical control of a vehicle. If 
the way they look at it is if I did wake up, would I have driven? I could have because I did have the keys. So, yeah, physical control of a vehicle. Why didn't you die? They used Narcan. I, ha- I don't have a lot of memory of it. I know when the police and the paramedics were there that they had told me that they had used Narcan to revive me. And then it's foggy again. I went to Sanford, was observed there for a little while before going to jail. But a lot of it I don't remember, just what I've been told and, you know, in the police reports what some of them say. Were you given any help in the emergency room for addiction, for treatment? Oh, no, not at all. None. What what did they do? Just make sure you were okay and let you go? I think they drew some labs. They kind of monitored, I think, my heart rate for a while. But nobody Oxygen. came in and said, hey, you overdosed on heroin. How can we help you? They gave me a piece of paper when I was discharged educating you about overdose. And you were immediately sent back to jail because this was a violation of your probation? I had four new felony charges, um, the DUI uh, possession, well, three new ones. DUI, possession of a controlled substance, and ingesting a controlled substance. So you, whenever you are charged with a felony, you go to jail pretty much with no bond until you see a judge. When you got to jail, did anybody try to help you with addiction? No, not or at all. Or to keep or withdrawal symptoms or anything? No, not at all. Nothing? Nothing. The nurse that you know intakes you into the jail, we had a conversation, and I told her what had happened, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry, but they're not trained you know, in that. I, nobody offered, no, no withdrawal help, no, well, what can we do? Do we have treatment? We have somebody you can talk to, nothing like that. And then you, are, you get out of jail, and you're waiting to see what happens, the sentencing. Are you ever offered any help? You've been kicked out of DUI court before. I mean, is there anything, did anybody come forward and, and suggest you go, go into a treatment center or... I'm on parole, so I was put in outpatient treatment through Volunteers of America, and then I think three or four weeks into that, I got terminated from treatment there for injecting water. Um, Sometimes the needle addiction or just the rush of seeing your blood pull back in a syringe is almost the, it gives you, I don't know how you call it, like almost like a placebo effect of the drug. Um, So once... So you were doing that when? After you'd overdosed? Uh, yes, after I overdosed because I didn't want to go back to the drugs, but I needed, I felt like I needed stress and anxiety relief. And huh. so that's, I did that, I think probably for Is two that days. common? It's a lot more common than you would think it was. If you do any research on it, a lot of times people at the end of the day are more addicted to the rush and the needle than they actually are the drugs. You go to this outpatient treatment program. That doesn't work because you're shooting up with mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm. Then what happened? Uh, my parole officer at that point in time, I think his concern, he had a large concern, and I was detained that evening, and I went back to prison to wait for a bed at the Glory House. He didn't feel comfortable any longer letting me go back home. As far as anybody getting me the help from that point, the overdose to now, parole has been the best. They have gotten me into the halfway house and the classes and the treatment that I've needed. Those things at the Glory House helped you? With, the halfway without house? a doubt. What was it that helped you the most? A lot of the staff there, they take the time, they're educated, and they're willing to stay late, you know, to come early. They're willing to do what they need to do to help you through what you might be going through. But I was put in a class also that I never took before. It's uh, SABISA. I can't remember exactly what the letters stand for. But a lot of my, I have a lot of risky thoughts. Even if I'm not using, I think I can go hang out with somebody that maybe I used with once, and you can't because that memory is going to come back, and it's 
puts you at a really big risk. It teaches you more how to replace those things um, with better thoughts. So it's a lot of replacement thinking. I learned probably more out of that class than I have in anything else that I've done. What about getting medically assisted treatment? Have you ever been offered Suboxone, any kind of medically assisted treatment? No, never. never. What do you think of that? Would you like to try that? At this point, like today, at seven months sober, I don't believe seven so. Seven months. You've mm-hmm. have, you have seven months right now. The thing about um, medically assisted treatment is it has been shown to be the only thing that really works long term. I would. I think it's something that I would be open to. My concern with that, I don't know how it works. I've never been advised, you know, what you do when you're on Suboxone or any of that. I always find a way to abuse medications, and that would be my biggest concern is that I would find a way to abuse well, it. And no two addictions are alike. Mm-hmm. Each addiction needs to be treated individually because no two people are alike. No two brains mm-hmm. are exactly alike. But you got this help. That has helped. You've been sober for seven months, but now it's time to basically pay the piper, right? Yes. I was sentenced on November 4th. And this is for the overdose? The overdose incident, yes. Mm -hmm. So it happened in March. Since that time, you know, like I said, I was sent to peer on a detainer waiting for the bed of the Glory House. I completed the Glory House, Sabisa class. Um, I had a CPS case that was open. Uh, That's Child Protective Services? Yes, yes. And they came in and looked to see... After the overdose, yeah, they did. My child's father had some concerns, so they were brought into my home. They did not ever remove my child. They didn't find that I had endangered him, but they put things in place to where I did have to be supervised for a little while until I earned the right to have him unsupervised. Um, but yes, I, I mean, I had CPS on my side. She wrote the judge a letter. I had several other people in the community. You've joined a church now that's mm-hmm. helping? I joined. Well, I grew up in this church. I just stepped oh, you away. Grew up in the I did. Oh, I stepped away for a while. My addiction became more important. Um, but you're going back to church. Yes, I've gone back to church. Without God, none of this would be possible. Do you think that has helped you the most, or what? Or, or you think it's a combination of all of these things? I think it's a combination of all these things. You know, in the past, you did the NAAA meetings, which I still do, just not as frequently. Uh, you think that that's working. You think you have everything you need. But at the end of the day, you still feel like something's missing. And the nice thing about this time is I don't feel like anything's missing anymore. I Back in church, I have more support than I've ever had in my life. And these are people that don't just say they care. They check on you every day. There's another accountability piece with that. The preacher, one of the preachers at church has 17 years of recovery. Um, that's an additional person to talk to. You know, we spend one or two evenings a week with him. I just think that for me, I needed all of these pieces, maybe even all of the accountability, the extra people that know. I needed to be honest and let everybody know what was going on. I was always afraid once you would get into a religious setting that people would just shun away from you if they knew who you really were. And when I told people in my congregation who I really was, I've never seen people band together to support somebody more. Um, So really it's that I've often heard that the solution for addiction is connection. Mm-hmm. We, um, we're still trying to get used to it. We get a little overwhelmed sometimes, but you know, you used to hang out with people that were like you, that used or that partied. And then you go through a period of time where your acquaintances are in a program that you're in, like DUI court, and then you finish that or terminate from it. And a lot of people go out and use again, and you lose what you thought were friendships. And these are true friendships I found in church, true connections people that invite you into their home 
for dinner, people that text you or call you. It's just, I mean, people that genuinely care about you, not just people that want to hang out and use for a minute. And that's been a huge, I think, thing for my entire family, not just myself. Having that there, it's, like I said, it's overwhelming sometimes because we're not used to it because that's not how, I mean, myself or my husband is wired, but it's becoming the more norm. And that's probably going to be one of the hardest things is losing that support to go to prison. I know they'll write and I know I can call them. I think they're going to stick behind you. Oh, without a doubt. It's just not being able to see them on a daily or weekly basis, not being able to be in worship service. And they are going to stand by me. They've, you know, they're sending Bibles, books and study materials. And I just hope that when I do go back this time that I can find a way to keep the anger at bay and find a way to get that connection in peer that I'm not able to get face to face or, you know, in worship here. But you don't have any hopes of getting treatment when you're there in prison. No, I don't even know that that would be recommended because of the treatment that I got on the outside after the detainer. But I, there is no treatment option in prison. So I, and that's what's hard. I know that at my sentencing, nobody thought I was going to go back. CP, at my CPS worker wrote a letter to the judge as well as, like I said, several people. And she thought it would be a detriment for me to go and be away from my son after building the trust back with the seven months of sobriety. With that being said, I know that I broke the law and there's consequences. So it was really hard for me to take when I found out that I was going back. I just, I don't understand a lot of it. You know, I, I was told that basically if the judicial system was all about rehabilitation, it would have been okay that I needed to be punished. And but why? So I can fail when I get back out? Do you think you will fail because you have to go back? I really hope not. I plan to do everything that I can while I'm there to continue to reach out to the supports that I have. I know that they'll reach out to me and send materials in. I'm going to do my best to keep busy, you know, studying different things I can regarding addiction or, you know, materials, anything sent in. I know that uh, my preacher says he's got enough work for me to do that can help me understand myself that could keep me busy for two years. So my hope is that I remember what's important and I don't get angry when I'm there and that I don't relapse when I get out, that I don't. Will you have a chance to visit your son? I know there's that um, home that's connected to the women's prison where people can bring children, um, spouses can come. Will you get a chance to have that? It really depends. Uh, They have a parenting class that you have to complete before you're allowed to do that. The last time I was there, there was like a three or three and a half month wait to do the parenting class that was required. Now, as far as him visiting me, he can. The problem there is my husband's a convicted felon, as is my child's father. So neither one of them were approved visitors the last time I was there. And they would be the two that could bring Sam. What about someone from your church? Could they bring him? Most likely, I think you can, I have to go back and double check the visitor list, but I think you can have two people from church on your visitor list. So would that help you if you're able to see your son during this time, which could be up to seven months. You're hoping, I know that it's less. Mm -hmm. Um, I know my parents could bring him too. Possibly they're a little bit older and I know it's harder for them, but as far as helping, I think it would really help me to see him while I was there. But I think it might hurt him more. Why do you say that? Because he would come and see me, maybe feel like we were being reunited 
just to have to leave again. It is hard for a two and a half or three year old to understand any of this. They don't have any reference. No, they don't. He's pretty smart. I think he understands a little bit of it. Once I got home from my detainer and peer in the halfway house, it took him quite a while to fully trust me again that I was going to come back to daycare and pick him up when I said I was going to. He always had a little bit of fear that I wasn't going to. And then it was like one day everything changed. And then he trusts me now. He, I can drop him off in the morning and he's like, mommy, be back. Mommy, be back after nap. And that's really hard because you can't explain to an almost three-year-old that, you know what, that's not going to happen for a long time. So we try to tell him I have to go away and I'm going to talk to him on the phone. But I don't know what's right and wrong. I haven't figured out like how I feel morally about whether I want to bring my child into prison to help me when it may hurt him. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't know. Hard. It's hard. Mm-hmm. What do you think could have made a difference earlier on to you? Is there anything maybe somebody that loves you or society could have done? What, what could have changed your uh, path here? I'm not sure. I had a great childhood. My parents are wonderful people. You know, my dad coached my softball teams. My mom, I mean, she had a daycare for a while. Our house was always, they were always welcoming to friends or anything. I, they were always that way. And I don't think there's anything that they could have done differently. They, I know my dad's a fixer. That's what he does for his job. And that's been the hardest part about this for him is he, there is no way he can fix me. And I think at this point, he may have started to accept that. But, I mean, just in the last year, it's it's really hard for, they don't understand. They don't, they don't know what they've done wrong. They question it a lot. I often hear that at the root of all addiction is trauma and that that trauma can really be different for everybody because what can be considered traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for the next. Or Was there an early on trauma in your life that you think led to that empty feeling where you were looking for something to fill it, whether that be food or heroin? There was. um, When I was under the age of five, there was some trauma that I really don't want to elaborate on any further. And I know you're not asking me to. I just wanted to. There was some trauma that happened, and I I do believe that it may have had a little bit to do with it. I think after... You go through certain things as a young child that you're just different after that. So, but there should be a way. Something that happened, even though I'm not, I'm not downplaying anything mm-hmm. that happened to mm-hmm. you. After so many years, maybe trying to come to terms with that trauma. I absolutely believe that you are correct. I think the part of it that was. For whatever reason, I didn't tell my family until I was in my 30s. So it was a secret. It was a it secret. It was shameful. Mm-hmm. Very shameful. I felt like I had done something wrong. And I think you're right. If it's something that I would have addressed and been open to discuss at an earlier age, I don't think we'd be here today. But I hid it for so long that nobody could help me. And know, so this, be, this, this became a part of you, really. Mm-hmm. And really the shame did. started long before the drug use started. Oh, without a doubt. What lesson do you think you can pass along? What do you want people to hear from your message? You can change your life. It doesn't, you know, your addiction, opiates, heroin, whatever your addiction may be, it doesn't have to define who you are. 
But in order to not let it define who you are, you have to find a way to forgive yourself. Have you forgiven yourself? In some areas, yes. And in other areas, no. Um, I wish I would have done more and I wish I would have realized my part in my DUI court termination before I went to prison because I blamed them the entire time I was there and it came up. But that's pretty typical for Mm -hmm. anyone who is suffering from addiction to project and project and blame others Mm -hmm. and never really truly, it's just so painful and so shameful to take on the responsibility for everything that has happened. It is. So recovery is possible. And I know that I report to jail to go to prison in two days but my life has never been better, and it, that probably sounds awful, but I'm, what I mean by that is I have more support than I ever thought possible. My husband and my relationship is on the mend. It's better now than it has been previously in, in any of the previous months. Uh, my parents, there's been times where they don't talk to me when I get incarcerated. We spend you know, a night or two a week with my parents having dinner, Uh, My mom told me the last time we were over there that if she could go for me, she would. And that's not something she would have ever told me before now. If you want to change, you can. But at the same time, just because I'm going back to prison, I don't have to let that define me either. I have to remember that, you know, with everything and all the steps that I've been taken and with the gifts I've been handed by people that have helped me, my entire life has changed for the better. So if what happened in March had to happen for me to get here today, and if I have to spend seven months in prison to have a good rest of my life instead of continuing the way I have been going, then it's all worth it. You know, it doesn't have to end badly. You can get help. You can change. And you can, you can love yourself again. Well, thank you. We will end on that note, and we'll be following your story. You know, I know this is going to be a very difficult few months ahead of you. I just wish you the best and hope that you can stay strong, although I don't think it's just a matter of being strong. I truly believe that addiction is a disease of the brain, and you have a disease that's being treated outside of the medical system, and we need to change that. We do need to change that. I completely agree with that. It's it's a scary thing. Um, People die every day that don't have to. Right. Well, I'm glad that you didn't die from your overdose and that you're here to share your story. Thank you. Thank you very much. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life. And by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.